Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your regular look at what's going on in the world of COVID research. It's been a busy time since we last recorded. Vaccines are beginning to roll out. The UK has been in the news with uh, lots of old people having received their first jabs. And it looks like uh, as we talk around the world, uh, regulators are beginning to approve vaccines, but in different ways. And we'll get onto that in a little bit. There's still questions around data. We haven't got past publication by press release. Again, we're going to pick up on that in this podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis. I'm multimedia editor at the BMJ. And as always, I'm joined by Helen MacDonald. Hi, Helen. Hi, Duncan. I'm Helen MacDonald, UK research editor at the BMJ and resting GP. And resting GP. Um, Helen, this week, again, you've been busy chatting to some very interesting people. Um, A little while ago, we were talking about communication and how poorly that has been done in various ways uh, in the UK and uh, the US uh, and all around the world, really. Um, And that's something that you wanted to, uh, to speak to an expert about. I did. A few weeks back, we talked quite a bit about personal risk communication and how best to um, give somebody information at an individual level. And this week I wanted to zoom out a level and look at messages that are given to the public more broadly, um, either to enhance their understanding or to build trust or to um, make them do something differently. Um, And through the pandemic, we've heard lots of messages from public bodies. Um, And I was thinking of some of the more catchy ones that we've had over here in the UK, like the hands face space. I'm not sure that's actually that catchy, but it kind of rhymes. I'm not really sure what Um, it even means. And uh, other ones, I mean, I guess sort of very plain, direct ones like stay at home Um, and, and perhaps more complicated ones like when to get a test, which feel a bit more nuanced so instructions like if you have a new or persistent cough or fever above a specific number or altered sense of um, smell or taste I mean that's quite a lot to remember and in recent days we've also started to hear messages about vaccinations to come forward and have your vaccination because they're safe and effective and I wanted to understand a little bit more about the science of, of that kind of communication how do you do it well um, and I talked to I think I think he's he's a kind of he's a bit of a big fish to be honest <laughs> in the world of um in the world of communication. I talked with Baruch Fischoff, um professor at Carnegie Mellon University over in the US to find out more. Great, let's hear that. Baruch, thank you so much for joining us uh, on Talk Evidence. I've been very excited about tracking down someone to talk to us about public health messages uh, for a while, and particularly in in COVID. Could you begin by telling us, at a basic level, what functions public health messages actually serve? You know, thank you for having me. There are two kinds of health communication or public health communication that support one another. One has come to be called risk communication. And that's getting the facts together and getting the facts out so that there is a story that people can, a reality that everybody can deal with. And the second is health promotion, which is telling people what is recommended for them to do. 
And they're a bit like they serve the role that different people want in, in relations with their physician, that some people want just the facts and they're going to make their own decisions. Some people just want to be told what to do. And some people want both. If they want to know, they want the advice, but they also want the basis of that. And they want to have the freedom to be trusted to uh, make their own make their own decisions. And through the COVID pandemic, I guess we've seen a mixture of those two things, but particularly a focus on wanting to change people's behaviour, really, to, to um, improve their health or protect um, ourselves and communities. So to be successful, how do these public health messages have to be delivered? What do they have to make you feel at the end of the day? One of the difficulties that we've had is that we haven't uh, shared the, we haven't done the risk communication as well as we might have. That is, people have not had a common basis for understanding how bad the disease is, how it transmits, uh, what are the long-term sequelae of, 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 the, of the disease, or of the effectiveness of different uh, health protective measures like, like face masks. And as a result, if people, the recommendations seem to come, often seem to come out of the blue, and they often seem to be in, inconsistent, and perhaps they are sometimes, but often they make more, could make more sense if a better job was done of delivering the message. And the, the, uh, the discipline for creating effective communications is, is um, it's a bit like communication in every, everyday life. That is, know what you're talking about, know your audience, and be ready to accept the fact that you probably haven't communicated as effectively as you thought the first time that you, that you try it. And so when we have a one-on-one -on -one communication, you look and somebody you're talking to has a puzzled look and you can, you can change it. But if you're preparing a broadband communication to a large audience, you have really no way of knowing how people are, are, are responding to it, often until it blows up on you. And the, the missing step in many, if not most public health communications is a kind of rudimentary testing needed to be sure that people understand the message. So as a minimum, one would like to take a draft of your communi of communication and have members of the diverse audiences that you're trying to reach just think aloud as they read the communication. Say, you were testing the communication, we're not testing you. Tell us whatever comes into your mind. And you always discover that you've gotten it wrong. Uh, there's something in the tone that really irritates them. There's a term that you interpreted in one way and they interpret it in, 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 uh, in, in another way. You're loading it up, you've loaded it up with things that they already know, so you've bored them and have a feeling of, of disrespect. So it costs almost nothing to do this if one just needs to, you know, arrange with community-based organizations and diverse communities to have a few of their members willing to do this. It's an easy learning process. And when communicators don't do it, it's a kind of professional malpractice. And who does this kind of work? Well, I would say in most cases, nobody does it. That is, it's not something you can write a big contract for. Uh, so it I think it doesn't particularly interest the uh, professional uh, 
you know, professional communicating or, or organizations. Um, and it's uh, it just not done. I, I was our Food and Drug Administration has a risk communication advisory committee that I chaired for its first few years. And at one point, it realized FDA. At one point, FDA realized that that its food recall notices were not communicating well, and they consulted with my committee. And as a result, they routinely ran their draft recall notices by their office staff. So the office staff is heterogeneous people with different backgrounds in Washington. They come from all over the all over the all over the country. So it was as simple as that, as efficient as, as that. So there's no excuse for saying, "Oh, we didn't have time to test our our, our message." Mm. It's just just listening to the audience in a place where there's not a natural way to get feedback can uh, is part of fulfilling our professional responsibility. And it, so it can be done. A particular thing of the COVID pandemic also seems to be that things, obviously at the beginning, were very uncertain. We didn't know anything about this condition. Um, and that's also led to a situation where maybe um, leaders, politicians, um, or those announcing recommendations have had to kind of change their mind. So we've seen satirical, funny impressions, for example, over here in the UK of our Prime Minister Boris Johnson telling people to go to work, not to go to work, to take public transport or not, or to to go outside or not. I think a comedian Matt Lucas over here did did quite a funny sketch on that. How how do you avoid that? A situation where it almost feels like either the public's getting confused or they're losing their trust in you because the message is changing. Well, we often communicate badly and then blame our audience. And um, the way to, when information is uncertain, it's critical to admit that. So to say, this is our best guess at what we should be doing right, right now. We are continuing to collect evidence and we will share that with you as soon as we, as soon as we get it. And it may lead to changes in policy, but we're in this together. We're not pretending to have a kind of authority that we don't have. And in fact, you lose your authority when people feel as though you're flip-flopping or you've hidden things from them. In in, uh, this country, we had a major miscommunication very early on regarding face masks. So um, homemade fabric face masks, you can imagine it's not a heavily studied area. There's not a lot of biomedical <laughs> research money going into it. But we knew early on that those there was good reason to think that those face masks somewhat protected the wearer and somewhat protected other people from the wearer as part of a, a kind of layered, layered defense. And yet, at the very beginning, there were announcements um, as part of our chaotic communications telling people not to wear face masks. And best I understand, the intent was that people not wear the high quality face masks that were in short supply for, um, for people at the front line of dealing with the, uh, with the pandemic because of our own uh, 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 poor, poor planning. But the message didn't, it wasn't clear to people that that's what they were talking about. 
it wasn't that those were the face masks that they were talking about. So when two or three weeks later, there was a recommendation that people do did wear face masks. Did you? When two or three weeks later, there was a recommendation that people wear these handmade fabric face masks. It just came out of the blue. There was no apology. There was no explanation, and 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 the public health communicators lost a lot of trust from that very simple situation where it was relatively easy to have gotten it right, and they didn't follow the discipline of, of sound sound communication. In these situations, people would like to. In these situations, most people would like to have a central authority that treats them respectfully, shares their information and uncertainty with them, so that creates a feeling that we're all in this together and we're all working off the same page. But as soon as you lose your credibility, uh, then the audience fractures and some people go to social media and some people go to the 24-7 news broadcasts that provide very little additional information whose, <laughs> whose expertise is really holding your attention past the next uh, next next commercial. So the audience fragments, it's filled by people who don't always know the facts and may not be concerned about the facts or pursuing some political agenda. And that's where we've ended up uh, ended up now with a much more fractured audience than we uh, you know, than we need to have had and and poor communications are are part of it. Mm. Within the context of the COVID pandemic, the next opportunity with respect to public communication really seems to be around um, vaccination programmes. Um, if you were sitting there um, on the committees of, of various governments around the world thinking about how we do the messaging around this, how we either lay out the facts or how we try and um, offer people the opportunity of coming forward for vaccination, what do you think they need to do? I had the opportunity to be on the committee of our national academies on equitable allocation of COVID-19 vaccine. And what we recommended is, first of all, get the facts that are needed. So in this case, this will mean tracking the vaccines. Who gets them? Are they distributed equitably? What kind of side effects are there? Um, Then that needs to be communicated transparently. That is, People should not have a feeling that anything is being hidden. It also needs to be communicated um, in ways that resonate with the way that people think about them, that if there are apparent side effects, are they occurring any more with people who get the vaccine than you'd expect in the overall overall population. They also need to um, give the full picture of the of, of the of the benefits of the of the vaccine. So we have an awful lot of attention to um, to the deaths, obvious, uh, obviously, but the physical and mental health sequelae of getting this vaccine, the economic disruption, all of those are part of the part of the picture, and people will be making decisions about whether or not they want to take the vaccine are entitled to know what's the full set of, of health health risks that they're trying to avoid. And then finally, the, the communications need to be um, need to be need to be tested. So one thing that we recommended was that the Centers for Disease Control and the state authorities that will be doing the, the, the direct distribution, contract with or or connect or partner with 
with uh, people, with organizations and, and academics from the diverse communities that we have in these in this uh, this country who help to tailor the the messages so that they uh, they work for their communities and so they have the right tone they have the right content they they address their concerns and they show the respect that that comes from the the, the speech act of talking directly to people in terms that address their their their, their concerns so this is very different from a model of developing broadband communications that will be given great produ excellent production values and disseminated to an entire entire country there's probably value in some of that so people get a general general message but the actual details that people need in order to decide whether they want to take the vaccine on their own behalf on behalf of their family their community and our overall society is going to require that kind of tailoring, which, which is not expensive. You just need to listen to people. That was a really interesting interview, Helen. And I think there was, uh, you know, just asking people how that's going um, seems so simple, but obviously, uh, as he says, uh, I doubt that's being done very well at all. Yeah, I think his his key message, or the thing that I really took away, was that importance of the final step of actually checking that your message has been understood. It's so basic. We're asked to do that as clinicians, aren't we, at the end of a consultation, check that the patient's actually taken on board what you said. And, and this is really no different. It's just doing it at a much grander scale. Um, and it would be lovely to hear from from members of the public around the public health messages, what they have taken away from them. Um, I think also as an optimist, um, <laughs> the thing... The thing which I hope happens now is particularly as we start to see um, vaccines, which feel like they're the next big public messaging um, thing in the pandemic. I really hope that we can learn um, from the way that we've messaged perhaps some of the things through the pandemic so far and to to improve that because it's a particularly challenging situation, isn't it? It's a very um, polarised topic or there are people that sit on in a polarised way. There are probably loads of other people in the middle that feel very indifferently about them. Um, there's still a lot of uncertainty. Um, we've got huge enthusiasm, a kind of wish for a solution because we don't have any huge game-changing drugs. And there's, I guess, just a, at a human level, a need for something to make this better. And it feels like um, this, that vaccinations um, could could be it and whether it's for personal reasons or or just because you would like life to get back to normal to be able to go about your business your family life all of those things it just um feels like we should get vaccination right and in fact that is the other thing i'd like us to talk about today ah uh, that's great and uh, i think if you look at the excitement that you know the news of the vaccine has been greeted with you can tell how much people are desperate to uh to get it um but yeah that that should be tempered with um it being you know safe and effective and i suppose uh there are still some questions around those kind of things and so we have to be cool-headed on this podcast we have to be hard-hearted and evidence-based and start digging um in, into some of that and that's what i hope um we can do next mm -hmm. 
Before we get going on the vaccine evidence dunk, I'm away, as many listeners know, on maternity leave at the moment, and I feel slightly out of touch. So would you just give us, uh, um, as of Friday morning, the 11th of December, 10.55, it's on my <laughs> clock now, um, what is the state of play with the vaccines? Well, that is important that <laughs> you give that specific detail, because uh, in the last couple of days we've seen um, this kind of wave of approval uh, in the regulators around the world. So the UK's MHRA was first and they have um, approved emergency use of the vaccine and I think that's important because that characterises how the use in the FDA which has just um, uh, announced this morning. It's all for this emergency use and that means that it doesn't have the marketing approval that um, drugs and things would usually go through. It's an accelerated um, process that under various bits of legislation allows uh, the regulators to to say yep you can use this in the in the short term i think in the uk anyway this means that it's a bit more complicated so each batch of the vaccine has to be kind of approved in in this way and so we'll see this happening uh, again and again until full market approval i suppose has been given and this is all for the pfizer um, vaccine at the moment and obviously um the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine um, and the Moderna vaccines are still uh, on the way and they're using different technologies and they might be useful in different ways. So, um, yeah, it's still a moving picture. I was nearly up to date, I think. Um, But as an evidence enthusiast, what I was really interested in and have been for some weeks now is seeing some of the findings and some of the evidence. Um, And initially we saw that emerge through press release and it was a bit frustrating because we couldn't really bring our listeners um, much news. But in the last few days, we've seen a huge emergence um, of information into the public domain in various ways. So firstly, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine have published um, some of their results and interim analysis from a number of um, trials they have underway in the Lancet. And secondly, um, the data for the Pfizer vaccine, um, which isn't publicly available to the best of my knowledge in the form of a research paper, has become kind of available somewhat in that form because um, as the FDA consider um, drugs and vaccines, they make certain information public on their website. And so you can go on there and you can find um, a big kind of dosset of information. I think it's like 90 pages long or something um, on the vaccination. So I am not going to um, pretend that I have been through all of this information um, or or that my esteemed guest has done so. But what I did want to do is go back to talk to Peter Doshi, who we last talked to in the summer, about how we would know if a vaccine um, was going to work well. Um, He's one of our colleagues at the BMJ, and he also does research into vaccines. Um, And he is a very meticulous person. And I thought if anyone had been through this data um, as yet or begun to, it would be uh, Peter. And I really wanted to focus in with him on talking about um, what we are beginning to know now about the safety and effectiveness of the vaccines. what challenges we have in interpreting that information particularly are there any biases that um, might might influence how we should um, interpret it and 
then moving on, what are the challenges for these trials um, as they continue? And also what are our challenges in trying to act on them and start vaccinating the population? Peter, thanks so much for coming back on the show to join us. And last time we talked things through, um, some of these larger phase three studies were just underway and it felt like the burden of work at that stage was with the trialists. And we've seen some of the results now starting to emerge and it now feels a bit like the ball of action has passed to the regulators. So I wondered if you could um, just give us some insights into what the regulators are actually doing now, the kind of challenges that they're facing. Right. Uh, so, yeah, we're literally in, in right in the middle right now of uh, major regulatory bodies making decisions about whether to uh, grant these first vaccines some kind of authorization. And so we see in the UK that's happened with this emergency type authorization. Uh, Canada announced its uh, one on Wednesday. And um, and the the FDA, uh, as we speak now, is is doing this today. It's it's holding its advisory committee meeting where it's asking this uh, panel of its, its its advisors whether or not they think the evidence is sufficient to uh, go forward with an emergency use authorization. So, yeah, we're at a point where the uh, phase three trials are. Uh, have have sort of collected the data that they set out to collect. And then, you know, we spoke earlier about are the data that they're collecting, are they really the question, are they, are they answering the questions that really need most urgently answering? So a lot of people have assumed that these trials are set out to determine whether the vaccine say, prevents infection or whether the vaccine will save lives or reduce ICU use, hospitalizations. And none of those things are things uh, that the trials were directly uh, designed to study. So where we're at now is where the, tri the trials have collected the data on this endpoint of symptomatic COVID of essentially any severity. And they were, from the get-go, designed so that after a certain number of events accrued, these primary endpoints of symptomatic COVID, uh, they would say, okay, we have enough to make a judgment about the vaccine's efficacy. And the number of events, you know, when you are still very small, you know, or surprisingly small, I think, to many people. It's less than 200 people uh, got COVID in this entire trial of, you know, say for Pfizer study, 44,000 people. So even in the... But the balance of the event seems quite, um, or from the from the kind of science yeah. by press release, predominantly that we've been hearing, um, gives certainly gives the public, somebody listening to the radio, watching the TV, the impression that these these work very well, um, even if you debate the, the meaningfulness of that endpoint. What, what reflections have you had so far um, looking at the, at the evidence on whether they do do the job for that outcome? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's, it's really hard to know for sure uh, uh, without a detailed, independent, painstaking, often slow, you know, reanalysis of the data. Um, but I, I definitely agree. The the headlines are very impressive. The the, the difference uh, between the vaccine group and the placebo group in terms of number of cases is quite stark. And so that's really what's made these you know big ninety five percent effective headlines um, so stunning. Is is nobody really expected it to come in uh, that high? Um, 
now it, 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 everything could be fine and those numbers could be credible, but there's a lot of context I think that needs to happen. One is just that discussion about, um, well, you know, mind you, this is about symptomatic disease. It's not necessarily about asymptomatic infections. Doesn't mean it's prevented infection altogether. Uh, this is not necessarily about the reduction of deaths. We don't you know, know that at this point, that data, those, you know, data haven't been collected to show that. That's one element of it. Um, the other is the duration of immunity. So let's say that these, these 95% numbers are um, accurate for what they set out to measure. Now that's, that is a, a measure of uh, efficacy at a time point of about two to three uh, months into the study. But you think about you know, what we see in this study in the placebo group, 99% of the people didn't get COVID despite being on placebo. So it's not like you, know, you immediately, uh, in, in the next two weeks or next three weeks, everybody's gonna be exposed to the virus. That doesn't seem to be how things are playing out in the real world. If that's the case, you really need your duration of protection to last a lot longer, right? You need, so the question then becomes, well, okay, if it's 95% on month two or three, what is it at six months or one year? Uh, when we, if, you, if you can do this comparison like with influenza vaccines, where there's often, um, if a contrast being made, they'll say, well, you know, these COVID vaccines are much higher than what we see for influenza, so we're very surprised. The thing is that I find that to be a bit of an apples and oranges comparison, because when we, when we talk about and assess influenza vaccines, we look at their performance over a year, you know, an influenza season. Now, we don't have the data to know what COVID-19 vaccine performance looks like over a year because none of these trials have gone out that long. They're really only looking at and it's interesting when we talked last time, Peter, we talked about the fact that the FDA um, and subsequently WHO had set out a kind of bar of how effective they wanted the vaccine to be in terms of um, its efficacy. And it was hovering around, I think, 50 percent, wasn't it? But we didn't talk about a time duration no, attached and, to that, did we? And that's that's quite interesting to reflect on that. We it missed is, that. It is. Um, and indeed, FDA and the regulators never gave a time point. And so the, the regulators um, had agreed. They said, 50, we want to see 50%. And they said, the, the, you know, the confidence interval or margin of error around that can dip to as low as 30%. That's what they put out uh, early on. Um, but they didn't put a, a time point. We don't know how it's going to, to fare over time. And it becomes you know, an increasingly important question as people um, may not be exposed immediately. So. It is something that, you know, the question now becomes, well, how do we figure this out? And I would say, well, you, you really have to continue follow-up of a placebo group to really get a good sense because we don't know what predicts protection at this point. If and there has been some talk of vaccinating the people now in the control arms of the studies, yeah. I think. But, but you're saying that's going to really muddy the water from in a, terms of us actually coming up with yeah well that's right stronger yeah, answers here perspective to be able to answer some of these questions you you really do need a placebo uh group otherwise you know like many things you're you're making sort of guesses but you're really not studying it in a more rigorous way the way i think a lot of people would expect the problem with continuing uh placebo controlled follow-up is that it, it becomes a little bit, uh, it becomes ethically and legally questionable when you have a vaccine that has been deemed to meet standards for some kind of authorization. 
So if you have something, and you know, and that's that's a judgment call at the end of the day that regulators make. But if they you know, wave that magic wand and say, we declare that you know that benefits are outweigh risks, then you now have a situation which is what precludes a lot of placebo-controlled studies, where there is an effective, you know. That therapy treatment or preventive you know, measure that could be given. Why would you, how can you ethically argue for a placebo control? Peter, you have written um, a piece exploring um, bias and particularly unblinding within the studies. Would you just like to comment on um, why you think that might be a problem? Yeah, so this is... Um an area where I'd say the the devil can be in the detail and it really underscores why you need um, careful review and careful review of a large trial can take considerable time. So the issue is essentially that we have to be confident that the data collection in the trial for the primary endpoint wasn't biased in some way. And one real concern um, is, was there unblinding in the trial, could people guess which group they're in? So with a subjective endpoint like symptomatic COVID, blinding is, is quite important. But if you can guess which group you're in, that means that you now have to be careful about how that might have influenced uh, the results. There were dramatic differences in the rates of side effects between vaccine and placebo. And so that's why it really raises this question of how well the trials could be observer blinded as they were intended. Um, the Oxford vaccine trial, for example, in the UK, used the meningococcal vaccine precisely because they wanted to avoid unblinding. The other thing about the, un, the unblinding is, um, it, or it's not about unblinding, but about bias, is these fever and pain medications that were taken in the trial. So I've looked at uh, the documents that FDA uh, put on its website uh, this week, and it looks like about three to four times as many people in the vaccine arm uh, were taking fever or pain uh, reducing medicines after their second dose. And the pr proportion was about 30 uh, to 40%. That's quite a lot. And the reason why that becomes important is because these medications can mask the symptoms of COVID, right? So some of the symptoms that would qualify you as having symptomatic COVID and meeting that primary endpoint definition include fever, include fatigue, muscle and body aches, or headache. And so those very symptoms, right, could be suppressed, even if they're caused by SARS-CoV-2. And the way this primary endpoint was defined in the trials was having symptoms and having a positive right. um, yeah. test so result. In Pfizer's test, you had to have one symptom, so fatigue and a positive test, or headache and a positive test. So if any one of those symptoms was masked by these uh, drugs, you'll have one less case counted, right? Because that person won't show up for a test. So that then raises the question, you know, you always want to wonder, well, is that gonna happen in equal proportions in your vaccine group and your placebo group? But if the vaccine group is taking the pain and fever medication, at the rate of around three to four times the placebo group, you'd expect that no, it wouldn't be. The rate would be different by group. And so it raises concerns. It doesn't provide us answers, but it's something that really has to be looked at in detail to see how this could have potentially affected the uh, data collection. 
Do you have any comments or thoughts on um, adverse events? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, the general mantra with, with adverse events is the trials only tell us so much. Now, you had an event already after just a couple of days in the UK with these allergic reactions. And, you know, the, the, I guess the, the, the good news there is detected in, you know, two days, the first week of a vaccination campaign, it allows you to learn from it to prevent this from occurring in, in future patients who still haven't come in to get a vaccine, right? So that's that's actually good news and is kind of highlighting pharmacovigilance at its best in, in, in a sense. Now, people were excluded, I think, from the trial who had any history of allergic reactions. So maybe that's why uh, it was reported that there were no allergic reactions in the trial. I don't know. but. It does emphasize the importance of post-marketing uh, surveillance. And where would those data come from? Would, would this be from kind of following up um, sort of real-life patients? Yes, if... that's right. That, so far, the pharmacovigilance yeah. reporting means patients, doctors, uh, their, 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 their providers, they, the companies, they're all sending everything they know about adverse events that they suspect might be linked to the vaccine they received. That's what, you know, you have the yellow card system there. Uh, in the UK, we have another uh, system called VAERS, a vaccine adverse event reporting system here in the United States. And that's what those systems are set up for, for anybody and everybody to be able to report to. Now, people need training in this. It's not as easy as it should be, um, but healthcare providers should be really leading the way in, in encouraging um, every event that uh, occurs to actually be reported. As always, a good chat with Peter. He's got a lot of detail at the tips of his, at the tip <laughs> of his tongue. Um, what I hadn't realised in that is exactly what the primary outcome um, for these vaccine trials were. So it's symptomatic COVID, um, and you needed to be symptomatic to receive the PCR test to confirm. Your, that you'd actually uh, got the virus. I kind of assumed because they'd enrolled people in, in a clinical trial that they would have just done some sort of blanket PCR testing because we know it can pick up the DNA from the virus You know, for a period after. You could have just done a single PCR test on the whole lot and seen who had it and who hadn't. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on your research question, doesn't it? And what you're really trying to detect and and. One of the things we talked back in the summer about is what um, either people or health systems are actually most interested in having answered. Um, and certainly it seems like there, I mean, there are many vaccines that are under development now and multiple trials that are underway. And it's likely that there is some variation in their primary um, outcome measures. But it does seem that most of them are focused on this symptomatic infection um, in part to achieve enough numbers. Um, and, and also, I guess, because that that was um, deemed of interest to the regulators. And I think quite a few of the documents talk about the fact that those developing the vaccines have been in very close communication with the regulators and I guess um, other, other bodies around what they find important. Yeah, and if you listen back in our catalogue, um, when we spoke to uh, the, the people from the EMA and uh, um, from a vaccine, sorry, from a pharma company developing a vaccine, they, they said just that, that they've uh, 
worked together quite closely on it. Um, the other bit in there that you picked up was talking about surveillance afterwards. And um, now that uh, the vaccine's being rolled out in the UK, there are patient information leaflets and you know, um, ways in which the public uh, can say if they think they've had some, some sort of uh, adverse event. Um, You've had to look at that. Uh, what what was in that patient information leaflet, and and how much do you think uh, it's actually going to be useful? Yeah, I mean, Peter made this very good point that particularly because these are, are new vaccines and the data that we have are very short term, there's an opportunity now to start um, research doing this pharmacovigilance um, work, um, and he mentioned reporting back. Um, which happens in the UK via the yellow card system um, and elsewhere like the US they have sort of parallel measures I understand and in the patient information leaflet produced by Public Health England which I had a look at on online this week there is a link through where you can report that information in I think perhaps the leaflet could um, stress why that's so important um, I think there perhaps could be some logistic challenges with doing that. Um, so either patients or clinicians can report. Obviously, the group of people who are going to be vaccinated first um, are older people um, who, without wishing to stereotype, who perhaps are less complete computer literate or comfortable with going online to do such reporting. Um, and I think also just the burden of work connected to that reporting is somewhat of a barrier um, which will face clinicians if they're the people doing the um, reporting of the data because it's not um, or at least I think the perception is that it's not a, a, a quick and easy thing to do. No and uh, thinking back to our first uh, interview um, I've heard people you know saying that they're worried that there are going to be people who get ill after getting the vaccine you know it's been given to a Old elderly population and you know people may have a heart attack or a stroke or you know whatever it is unconnected to the vaccine but you know chronologically kind of close in time and without holding a lot of that kind of communication around what adverse events are how it works the the association correlation isn't causation all of that stuff um that we might end up uh, with some troubles there around kind of public trust in the, in the vaccine as well. So it's, it's both ways. It's, it's really, yeah, it's a lot to There's do. this kind of balance to strike, isn't there, between, um, I think, those two branches that Baruch talk, talked about at the start, information sharing. And I think if you were just sharing information on the vaccine sort of straight up, you'd have to say that a lot still is uncertain, um, particularly whether it works um, beyond short months um, and in the longer term, um, are there other adverse events that we don't know about or are there um, severe but rarer ones, really rare ones that the um, trials um, couldn't pick up? And I think that is somewhat at odds with information that perhaps has more of a public health purpose to persuade and to reassure you that you do want to get this vaccine, don't you? It kind of, there, there is a slight tension um, tension there, I, I think. Um, but I do hope that um, we as a medical community are 
brave enough to share that uncertainty um, with the knowledge um, from our conversation with Baruch that that is likely to build the strongest trust and in the long run allow people to make the decisions around the vaccine that are right for them. I think the final thing on the evidence communication is it will be interesting to see as we're currently at the beginning of the story of evidence for the vaccines, how... um, public health bodies can develop and in a way keep their messaging to the public and those coming forward for vaccination live um, in the same way that we've seen the growth of living systematic reviews and the growth of living guidance. um, Can we have kind of living patient information leaflets where we can begin to share how effective it is at different time points, um, what we know about the downsides over time um, to kind of modernise and really push forward the way that we um, share information with the public. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about sort of a mass vaccination regime, we're in a really different place with this one. It's not like there is one vaccine and you have to choose whether or not to get it. There might be different vaccines that are better in different populations, have different you know, benefit risk profiles, and uh, uh, there's a lot to co- communicate and um as you've said with with Peter, you know, this data is still not in the public domain. So, you know, a uh, lot more and more of it, more and more information is going to come out. And and you're right, it's going to have to be constantly updated to maintain that trust that um, that Baruch was talking about. You know, if uh, if the patient information leaflets end up not reflecting the the reality, that's not going to be a very good sign that patients should trust what the doctor's saying to them. So uh, on that, uh, that's probably a good place to wrap up. And I promise that before Christmas, we're going to bring you something a little bit more silly. It felt felt like vaccines in December. I was umming and ahhing around, is this too heavy for for mid-December? Is everyone feeling a bit tired and in need of a Christmas break now? So we're going to bring you something more lighthearted for our next episode. We are. And if you uh, have a look at bmj.com, the tone is going to sharply change as our Christmas uh, articles uh, again this year start appearing online and uh, Helen you've, you're going to give us a, a little insight into how uh, Christmas research is actually chosen in the BMJ so uh, if you haven't subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcast from so you don't miss out on that until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me take care out there